All right, good morning. Uh, Genesis. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, 42. Genesis chapter 42. We've been going through Genesis as a, as a church. We're almost done, actually. Wow. Title of my sermon today. Oh, that's not right. 42 through 45, not 25. It's um, hard to do. Uh, to go backwards, 17 chapters. But Genesis 42 to 45. Um, but the title of my sermon is called The Blame Game. And we're coming in for a landing here um, in the book of Genesis. We started off in Genesis with, obviously, God creating the, the universe. And now we're ending up with God kind of setting his affection on this family. That God has decided to save the world through a family. And he's chosen that family to be Abraham's family. And he comes to Abraham and Abraham, uh, in Abraham in Genesis 12. Um, and he says to Abraham, basically, um, I will be with you. I will bless you. Um, I am your very great reward. And it's this covenant. It's this agreement he makes, basically. Um, and oftentimes in ancient times, you had a covenant, which is basically a contract between a superior and an inferior. And the superior would say, listen, I'm superior. You probably noticed. I'm, I have a lot of men. I have a lot of money. I have a big army. I'll protect you if you meet certain stipulations. And, so, and of course, the inferior would say that would be wonderful because I'm just a farmer. I have no army. I do have children, so I'd like to be protected. And I, yeah, I can give you, you know, 10% of my wheat every year or whatever. This is a normal thing, but it had never happened. We have no example in the history of all uh, time. We have no example from any kind of archaeology in the Middle East or anywhere of a covenant relationship between a God and a people. It's usually a king and an inferior. So God comes on the stage and he says, listen, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be your Lord. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide all those things for you that you need. And he chooses a family, but there's a problem with choosing a family because they're a family and they're people. And they make mistakes. And in Genesis, sometimes pretty disgusting ones. But our families do too. So it's a great way to be able to connect and realize God is working. But the whole book of Genesis has been building to this very moment. If you remember, uh, Joseph is is sold into slavery. If you uh, zoom on back to Genesis 37, Joseph is one of 12 kids, one of 12 boys. The sons of Israel, also named Jacob, the sons of Jacob. Uh, ten are basically from uh, Leah and from uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. And, uh, those are women's names. And, and then uh, two, two kids are from Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite. His, he was in love with Rachel, his favorite wife. She bears him two, um, two children, Benjamin and Joseph. Now, remember, Joseph is a dreamer. And Joseph dreams a dream. He says... You guys, I had this dream, weird, how like all you guys were bowing, bowing down to me. Uh, he tells that to his brothers. And his brothers are very aware of their father's favoritism. They're very aware that they're second-class sons. And so they're jealous, they're envious, and they're angry. And they decide that they're going to kill. They say, look, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and see what comes of his dreams. Um, and so, which is, you know, actually, that's, that scripture is engraved, where Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot in the, at the Tennessee Hotel, by the way. They say, let's, let's kill the dreamer. See what comes of his dreams. And so here comes Joseph, and they decide, and Reuben talks him down. Reuben says, hold on, let's not kill him. Um, let's throw him into a well instead, you know. So they throw him down a well. They share a meal together while he's down there. And then Judah has an idea. And in chapter 37 in Genesis, verse 25, it says, when they sat down to eat their food, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. 
Their camels were carrying spices, balm, and myrrh down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Basically, Judah says, Hey, if we kill him, we don't make any money. Let's at least sell him and make some money. So they decide to sell Joseph. He's a young man who's sold into slavery. He's in slavery uh, for 10 to 12 years. um, And then he rises out out of slavery, out of prison. And he actually makes something of himself. He becomes the vice regent. He becomes the grand vizier of Egypt. He's a government official. Now, we haven't seen the brothers since then. Joseph has been basically rising through the ranks in Egypt. But that moment has finally come. Genesis 42. We're going to do a fair bit of reading. I have the NET, so it's a different version probably than what you're reading, but just hang in there. It's the same Bible, just some different words. Um, and so we, we might jump through a little bit. So just stay with me as we fly through these two chapters. Chapter 42, verse one. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you looking at each other? He then said, look, I hear that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy grain for us so that we can live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Joseph did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers. For he said, what if some accident happens to him? So Israel's sons came to buy grain among the other travelers for the famine was severe in the land of Canaan. So Jacob realizes last time all my boys were out together, they came back without a son and it was my favorite son, Joseph. And so he actually sends all of his sons. This is a a daring, risky adventure, basically uh, a mission to get food from Egypt and he won't send Benjamin. So what does it tell you about Jacob? He values Benjamin above the rest. Basically, he doesn't care if his other sons die. He does care if Benjamin dies. And this is a vicious cycle of sin. Abraham, he played favorites, favorites, right, with his wives and even with his kids when he had Ishmael and his other son, Isaac. And Isaac played favorites with his boys. This is a, a, a pattern of generational sin. And this year as a church, we've been talking about building family. And a part of building a family as a church is to come to terms with the patterns of sin that have been in our lives and most likely things that we've learned from our parents and perhaps they learned from their parents, these, these, these sins that have been you know, endemic in our lives for generation after generation. And the incredible thing about God is, is that God is working, as he works through families, he's working through generations. And so we see the disgusting aspect though of favoritism. And the boys leave going, okay, our, our dad doesn't care as much about us. They're very aware. It's why they sold Joseph. Twenty-two years later, has dad changed? No. In fact, he's probably more, you know, favorite, playing favorites with Benjamin. So the boys go down to buy grain. And you can probably imagine it. They go down there and there's, there was, the famine was severe all over the land. So everyone's in Egypt. And here's Joseph walking around probably, you know. And so the Egyptians were clean shaven, right? They're like the New York Yankees. They were clean shaven and they're walking around and everyone else had beards. And so you can see Joseph probably and his brothers come in and they don't recognize him, right? Because they think he's dead probably. And Joseph probably knows, sees him from afar. Just imagine how you'd feel 22 years after you were sold into slavery by these people. You don't know about your dad. You don't know if he's dead or not. You don't know about Benjamin. All you, because Benjamin wasn't there when they sold him into slavery. He, he, he could, for all he knows, Benjamin's dead. For all he knows, they killed dad. They were so angry. I mean, who knows what's going on? Joe has no idea. Joseph is not aware of anything. And he sees his brothers come down to buy food. And you can kind of see, it's almost like a movie scene when they come together. We as the audience know they're related. But the brothers don't recognize him yet. Verse 26. 
Now, Joseph was the ruler of the country. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 6. The one who sold grain to all the people of the country. Joseph's brothers came down and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke to them harshly. He asked, where do you come from? They answered, from the land of Canaan to buy grain for food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see if our land is vulnerable. So basically they have a heated interchange. Joseph says, you guys are spies. They basically say, "Um, no, we're 10 brothers. If we're spies, we're the worst of all time because, you know, 10 brothers dying, coming to buy food. We're not very, we're not trying to hide, but Joseph treats, calls them spies. You're spies, has them imprisoned. Then he has another interchange with them where he basically says, I don't believe that you are actually not spies. You have to prove that you're not spies. Do you have any brothers, sisters, family? They say, yeah, we have a younger brother, Benjamin. So he says, all right, go back to Canaan, bring your brother back here, and then I'll know you're not spies. But just as some collateral damage, I'm going to take one of you and keep you in prison here. So he keeps Simeon. He keeps Simeon there in Egypt, and he sends them back. But he does something interesting. He puts, he puts something, puts some money into one of their sacks. And so when the brothers are traveling back to Egypt, they have, and they have some food, by the way, just enough to kind of get by. So they have some food for the famine. And they, but they realize when they stop for the night, they open their sacks and they realize, oh my gosh, there's more money in here than when we, when we came, we've, uh, we've attained money or we've, we've accrued money. That's not good. Um, we didn't take it. We didn't know. So they head back to Egypt and they talk to their dad about, or sorry, they head back to Canaan and they talk to their dad about what happened. So 42, 29. They returned to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan and told them all the things that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and treated us as if we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. Oof. What do we know about these guys? They're not honest men. They told their dad that their brother had died. They drenched his cloak in goat's blood and said, hey, dad, Joseph is dead. And they sold him into slavery. So not honest men. But we are honest men. We're not spies. We are from a family of 12 brothers. We are the sons of one father. One is no longer alive. And the younger one uh, is with our father at this time in the land of Canaan. And they begin to explain to their dad what happened. Now, obviously, Jacob is like, man, you keep leaving and you keep losing my kids. Like, please stop that. Right. But Jacob is, I mean, obviously very angry and he's hurt. I've lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon, too. And here Reuben begins to speak up in in chapter 42, 37. He has an idea. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put in my care. Put him in my care and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob replied, my son will not go down there with you. For his his brother is dead and he alone is left. Ouch. Oh, he's the only son I have. Ugh. If an accident happens to him on the journey you have to make, then you will, bring my, uh, you will bring down my gray hair and sorrow to the grave. So Reuben's idea is denied. Verse, uh, verse one of chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. When they finished eating the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back to Egypt, buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, you will not see my face until your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we won't go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man that you had one more brother? 
They replied, the man questioned us thoroughly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have a brother? So we answered him in this way. How could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to his father, Israel, send the boy with me and we will go down immediately. Then we will live and not die. We and you and our little ones. I pledge myself as security for him. You may hold me liable. If I do not bring him back to you and place him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. But if we had not delayed, we could have gone and come back by now. It's like when you're looking for a movie. You're like, man, if we, if we just picked one, we'd be like halfway through it by now. Still looking. Anyway, this just came to mind. So Judah steps in and has a different idea. Reuben says, listen, if, uh, if I'll go and get your son back, but, and if I fail, you can have my two sons. Judah says, I'll go, and if I fail, you can have me. And so Israel, Judah, uh, Jacob says, yeah, Judah, go. Go get your brother back. So they head down. They go back. They meet Joseph. Joseph is all the while, by the way, with all these interactions, Joseph keeps having to leave the room to cry. Because he can't, he's, he's kind of staying in character of, of, he's speaking through an interpreter. So that, you know, he's speaking um, Egyptian. They don't know that this is him. But he can't. He's having trouble holding it in. He's, he's having to leave the room just to, just to cry uncontrollably. I mean, I can't imagine what he's going through. So they go back. Joseph throws a feast. They all eat together. Um, and then one more time, uh, Joseph says, goodbye, see you guys. And he puts a silver cup in one of their sacks. So they're heading back and they stop for the night again and they open their sacks. And there it is. Uh, uh, or actually, no, before they open their sacks, uh, 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 the steward Joseph sends the steward and says, hey, go ask them if they stole anything. So the steward comes up and says, hey, did you guys steal anything? They say, no, come on, we've been through this already. We would never do something like that. We're good, right? We're clean. Like, we're on our way back. Please let us go. And then he goes, all right, we'll just open your, 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 your travel sacks just to make sure. And they go, okay, fine, whatever. Like, if one of us has the, the cup, you can hold them responsible. But no one took anything. So they open the sacks, and there's the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Everything is being reversed, by the way from the first encounter. Um, this is a reversal of when Joseph is sold into slavery. Joseph has done nothing wrong, but he's sold into slavery. Nonetheless, the brothers, in a lot of ways, have done nothing wrong in this episode, but they keep realizing the, kind of the, 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 the world's up against them. Like, why is this still happening? And so in chapter 44, um, Yeah, verse 6. We'll start there, do a little review. When the man overtook them, he spoke these words to them. They answered him, Why does the Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Why then will we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If one of us has it, he will die, and the rest of us will become your Lord's slaves. He replied, You have suggested your own punishment. The one who has it, uh, will become my slave, but the rest of you will go free. So each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The man searched. He began with the oldest and finished with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They all tore their clothes. Then each man loaded his donkey. They returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came back to Joseph's house. He was still there and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what did you think you were doing? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? And one of the brothers steps up. Judah replied, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has exposed the sin of your servants. We are now my Lord's slaves and we are we and the one who in possession of the cup 
uh, we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. But Joseph said, far be it for me to do this. The man whose, ha- whose hand the cup was found will become my slave, but the rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Then Judah approached him and said, my Lord, please allow your servant to speak a word with you. Please do not get angry with your servant for you are just like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or brother? We said to my Lord, we have an aged father and there is a young boy who was born when our father was old. The boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you told your servants, bring him down so I can see him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves, his father will die. But you said to your servants, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you will not see my face again. When we returned to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we can't go down there. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go for we won't be permitted to see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife gave me two sons. The first disappeared and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me two, and an accident happens to him, then you will bring my gray hair and tragedy down to the grave. So now, when I return to you, your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his very life is bound up in, the, in his son's life. When he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our fa- father in sorrow to the grave. Indeed, your servant pledged security for the boy with my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father all my life. So now please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave instead of the boy. As for the boy, let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see my father's pain. Joseph was no longer able to control himself before all his attendants. So he cried out, make everyone go from my presence. No one remained with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept loudly. The Egyptians heard it and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him because they were dumbfounded before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, when you, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be upset and do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. So we'll stop there. I know a fair bit of reading, but all one story, really, and all one incredible story and really the climax of the book of Genesis. There's a lot here. There's a lot of layers of what's going on. We're going to look at really one aspect today and close out the book of Genesis uh, Genesis on December 1st with another one, one final aspect of the story here. Um, the last time, well, my first point is sin always has consequences. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. One of the things that our world tells us is that you can do whatever you want as long as you're happy and it's okay. Um, And that's something that we kind of see more and more and more and more, right? Um, I have a, a bad back we've discovered recently. So my wife and I have been going to this yoga class together and the yoga instructor is great. It's actually really helpful for my back. But the yoga instructor is so funny. She goes every time, she goes, this is how you do the pose. But if you don't do it this way, any way you do it is right for you. And she says that every time. And it really bothers me every time. <laughs> and, I, and she's like, it's, anything you want is perfect for you. And I'm like, that's probably supposed to relax me. But it's making me angry. 
because if I'm doing it wrong, please tell me I'm doing it wrong, you know? Um, and so it's funny. I want to have a conversation with like, you can let me know. Like if I'm way off, and I think most of the time I am, by the way, like way off on, the, on what I'm supposed to be doing, like please tell me, hey, that's, that's wrong. That's not the right way. It's gonna, you're going to hurt yourself or something, right? But it's funny. I think that kind of is an interesting way to kind of encapsulate our world is whatever you think, whatever you do, no matter who you date, no matter who you sleep with, no matter what drugs you do, no matter which church you choose, no matter what you say, all those things can, are just kind of just forget about it and move on. But whatever makes you happy, go ahead and do it. And it's just not true. Any of all of us know that, that sin always has consequences. Now, that's why there's a sacrificial system in the Old Testament, by the way. Why do they kill animals in the Old Testament? I don't understand it. Well, it's a different it's a different sermon, but really because they believed that sin goes somewhere. Your sin can't just dissipate in the atmosphere. That sin, someone has to pay for that. Sin has to be paid for by someone, somewhere, somehow. And all of us know this. Any of us who've been in sin in the past, those things don't go away. They affect your marriage. They affect your parenting. They affect your faith. They affect your ability to be healthy. They affect your your perspective on life. Like the things we do, the sins we commit, they don't, they have consequences. Now, they, they, they differ in the amount of consequences, but the brothers are, are seeing this, aren't they? 22 years goes by. We didn't read all the text, so I encourage you to read it later. But 22 years goes by, and when they find that money in the first sack, you know what they think? They go, oh, this is because of what we did to our brother Joseph. That's what they say. The first thing out of their mouth there early in 40, chapter 42. This is because of what happened to our brother Joseph. Reuben actually says, it's a funny moment. Reuben actually says, well, y'all did that. I didn't do that. Like you guys sold them and you guys did that. Um, Reuben's constantly not being helpful. Um, you know, it's like, uh, hey, take my two sons. And Jacob's like, Reuben, stop. That's not, it's not, like, it's, it's, he's missing. And we'll talk about Reuben more in a bit. But, and then when they get the silver cup, they go, oh, this is what we, this is because of what we did to our brother. And they actually say something interesting in, in the story. They say, I, I remember when we heard him screaming for mercy and we said, we ignored him. And we don't get that back in chapter 37, but we get it here that they actually heard their brother screaming in that well. You can imagine a child screaming for help and you're eating lunch and trying to figure out how you can make money off of selling him. I mean, this is a disgusting, horrible, violent, envious sin. And for 22 years, all they had to do was just do a lot of of reflection and, and yoga and they forgot about it. No, it was still, it was still on their conscience. They were still guilty. Everything they did was interpreted through this sin. God, God's found us out. You know, there's a great proverb. The wicked flee, though no one pursues. You know, people are like, the people that are highly defensive usually means they're trying to hide something. Why, why are you asking me how my day went? Why? What are you after? What do you want to know? Stop it, right? It's, the wicked flee, though no one pursues. These men are guilty. And Joseph, we don't know why Joseph is doing what he's doing. Um, but it seems... Let Joseph is reconstructing the exact same situation that happened to him. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery because they were jealous of him. So Joseph reconstructs a situation where the boys have another choice. In fact, the exact same choice they had 22 years ago. Are we going to give up our brother Benjamin? Are we going to let him go? Are we going to sell him into slavery so that we can get off scot-free? And so Joseph sets it up. He wants to know, are my brothers as heartless as they were 22 years ago? Have my brothers changed? Or at the end of the day, is it really just about what's going to make them money and what's going to get them off scot-free? Do they really just still care about themselves? And Joseph sets up this this situation. 
And I think we have to understand that sin always has consequences. Jesus says, uh, by the measure you use, that measure will be used against you. That's the same thing as this. Don't be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. If you're sowing seeds of apple trees, don't be surprised when apple trees pop up in your front yard. If you're sowing seeds of anger and, 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 and bitterness and all your and, and drunkenness and, and isolation, and if you're harboring angry thoughts, don't be surprised when you're an angry person. Don't be surprised when you don't have friendships. Don't be surprised if, if people have trouble talking to you. And so God's understanding, we first have to take account of our own sin. It is of massive importance. In the Bible studies for seekers that we do, a lot of you have done those, but uh, we look at a scripture in Matthew 7 where Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, where does sin come from? And they're like, well, it comes from like doing bad things, like not washing your hands and, you know, and things like that, which is another sermon. But uh, Jesus says, no, that's incorrect. Sin comes from the heart. Owning your own sin. It is so difficult to own your own sin. It's, it's really difficult. It's, it's not something that is normal to say it was my fault. And that's something that, that I think is crucial to our walk with God. Because I think Christianity has cheapened everything that is in the Bible that's supposed to be what we have in Christ. But if, if the world tells us nothing you do matters, right? Just you can miss church for three months. You can say what you want to your wife. You can you know, say what you want to your kid in an in, in, in angry fit of rage. Or you can do whatever you want because God, just God has grace. God has grace. It's, it's a license to sin. There's, it, can't, it, it doesn't cost you anything. And anything that has value in this world must cost us something. There has a cost to it. It's all cheap. And it's all nothing. And then we've reduced it to this, this service on Sundays where people go just because they want to. It was a nice service. But it has to cost us something. Otherwise, we're just vacuum salesmen. That's a quote I like, too. If, uh, if Christianity doesn't cost you anything, we're just vacuum salesmen, which used to be a thing. We're just going door to door selling a product. If it doesn't cost us anything. You know, Joseph is sold into slavery. You can, and it's just, I encourage you to go this week, visualize this scene. I tried to visualize it with my brother. I tried to imagine hearing my brother scream for mercy and then beating him up and selling him for money. 20 pieces of silver, by the way, selling him into slavery. 20 shekels of silver and selling him into slavery. I just, it's so crazy to think about. And then to have your conscience I mean, a lot of us, we have consciences that beat ourselves up to, be, to have that self-accusation every day of what you did to your brother and to lie to your dad every day. What that does to someone's heart. What that does to someone's life. I mean, it's funny that in, in a way, they sin against Joseph, but when they see Joseph, they're accused, they're burdened, they're not free. No. Joseph is the one who's yeah. vice-regent Grand Vizier of the most powerful empire in the world. But it's funny how we think, oh, if I can do what I want, then I'll be free. If I can make any decision I want, oh, Christianity, that's a straitjacket. They're going to they're gonna bound me up and make me do stuff. You're in a straitjacket already. The world has you in a straitjacket. You think you're going to be free? You're going to you're gonna be accused and burdened when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. And by the way, congratulations, you'll pass on that burden to your kids. God is, God is serious when he says, I want to work through a family and praise God that it's a covenant. Now, a covenant is he's going to hang in there with us. 22 years, right? Sometimes it does take time for our hearts to get there. Amen for God's grace. Second point is we've got to have the right kind of sorrow. We've got to have the right kind of sorrow. You know, I want to talk about Judah and Reuben for a bit. 
Now remember, those are the two guys that pop up when he's sold into slavery. Reuben says, hey guys, I washed my hands of this. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think we should kill the guy. Judah, on the other hand, says, let's not just kill him, let's make money off of him. And so these are the two characters. Now, when they're trying to get uh, Benjamin, or sorry, Simeon back, but also protect Benjamin, Reuben offers his sons. Sounds familiar, I think, if you've read Genesis. Um, remember Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah? And there was a problem. And he's like, here, take my daughters and, you know, have your way with them. Just don't take me. Right? Here's Reuben doing the same thing. You can have my two boys. You can kill them if you want. And it, it may seem like, like a good thing, but it's really, when you, it's not, right? It's selfish. And Judah steps in and says, I'm going to take Benjamin, and if I fail, you can have me. There's a crucial distinction there, even these 4,000 years ago. There's a crucial distinction there that I think we have to take today. Because a lot of times, I think the other thing that's, that's been cheapened in, in, in Christianity today is the idea of repentance. Repentance, right? I mean, I would venture to say that you could walk into most churches and say, I want to pledge membership here. They'd put you into a class, or you'd attend a class. You'd probably pass that class at some point by reading some scriptures. And then you can attend small group if you like and church if you like. But no one's going to force you to do anything. No one's going to. There's no, there's not a high degree of accountability for the most part. Okay. At least in my experience. But I think when we cheapen repentance and we cheapen grace, we cheapen all the experience. We wonder why we can't stop sinning. We wonder why our lives don't change. Because it's not, it's not the real Jesus. You've, it's just some, some cheap, right, vendor on the side holding out his coat. It's like, you want one, right, for 10 bucks? Like, it's not real. It's not real Jesus. We don't have the right kind of sorrow. Reuben seems to be afraid. Judah, are, they both seem to be, have sorrow, but 2 Corinthians 7, one of the great passages, if you're struggling with repentance, one of the great repentance passages, says, yet now I am happy. Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So basically what happened is Paul rebukes them. He says, you guys are in sin, Corinthians, for a number of reasons. Pride, arrogance, bragging, sexual immorality. And they have a hard time with that. They get angry. They get defensive. But they were made sorrowful. And Paul says, at first I was a little Oh, they're mad. Oh, no, did I make a mistake? You know how you try to be bold? You try to say the right thing. And then someone's like, and then you, they, you know, did they take it right? Did they hear it right? Are they mad at me? Are they angry with me? Did I ruin something? Paul's like, I felt that way. But now I see that your sorrow led you to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. I think a lot of times we think just because we're sad, it means we're repenting. But just because you're sad doesn't mean you're repenting. We can feel guilty. I feel guilty. It does not mean you're repenting. You can feel down. Oh, shucks, I blew it. I messed up. This is common with sins that have been in your life for a long time, by the way. Oh, I blew it again. But we're all sinners, huh? We all mess up. We just kind of shrug our shoulders. But there's a, a vast difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, right? So they both actually start... Oh, this is a different slide. Okay. So a lot of people wonder, like, hold on. What is repentance? Because when I went to camp when I was 10, they had a really great camp, and I I felt really good. Did I 
And for like two weeks, I was pretty, I was reading my Bible. I was singing the songs at church and not just mouthing them. I was doing, I was hugging people. So it was that repentance. Or when I was 15, I slept with this guy and afterwards I felt so guilty. I felt so guilty. So for like a couple months, I went to church. Was that repentance? It's a hard question, right? What, what is repentance? Is it your conduct? Is it your achievement? Is it your success? Is it your status? Is it like sinning less per day than before? What is it? This is our life before we really repent. It is, yeah, life's awesome. And then we do something that crushes us. We feel guilty. So then we escape that pain for a while. Maybe we go do something that makes us feel better or alleviates the pain. And then we get, and we get, we get on a high. We start going to church again. We start getting involved. We read our, maybe even we read our Bible. We start coming to church again. And then we do something. And then this is just our whole life. And, and we, don't, we don't know how we're doing with God. Depending on when you ask somebody, is like depending on how they're feeling. The problem with a world that tells you to do whatever you want as long as it makes you feel good is that you give them all the power. And all of the power of right and wrong is, in, is seated in our emotions. The problem with doing that is that you are emotional. Have you met yourself? You are emotional. So on a good day, you'll be like, I'm saved. And on a bad day, you're like, I'm definitely going to hell. Like you, it's just up to how you feel that day or what happened in the world. And God is a compassionate God and he doesn't want us to live like this. So he breaks through into, into, into history. He brings this Jesus, right? Who makes us, he should make you sad. He should. Sorrowful as God intended. But that sadness should not stay. It should cause you, it should wake you up to the life that you could live if you simply stopped beating yourself up about all the bad things you've done. And then there's this incredible, uh, Ed Anton calls repentance, a cosmic shift of mind and heart. It's, it's a radical real, realignment. I used to live for myself. I used to date who Drew wanted. I used to do whatever Drew wanted to do. Now I live for Jesus. I go to church a lot, way more than Drew really wants to, to be honest. I do, I do a lot of things. I don't watch movies, even though Drew sometimes feels like, I want to watch that movie. No, Jesus wouldn't want me to. I talk to people. I, I go up to people who have nothing in common with me, and I try to start conversations. I go up to strangers and try to share my faith. Drew, had, Drew wants no part of that, by the way, but Jesus does. And so on February 21st, 2003, young 14-year-old Drew, who didn't know much and was a little overweight, he got baptized. He got baptized at the age of 14, and it was this metanoia. It was, oh my goodness, I've been living for myself. Even though I went to church every Sunday, my attendance record as a kid was impeccable. I was at church every Sunday for 14 years. I was coming, out, coming to church as a fetus. I was doing incredible things. I had the memory verses down. After every Bible study, I typed out in, in Times New Roman, 12-point font, with a decorated border of what I learned from that Bible study. I wasn't saved. I had to meet Jesus, the real Jesus. And realize that I'm only doing religious things because Drew wants to do religious things. I need to deny myself and carry my cross is such a revolutionary mindset. It is. It punches you in the spleen. It doubles you over with what have I been doing? It opens your eyes. and, And it's the kind of thing that helps a kingdom kid who might think, well, I don't have much really loud sin. I didn't do anything crazy, right? I disobeyed my parents twice. Like, what do you want me to say? But still, I was in sin. I was living for Drew. And then Jesus enters your life. It is a a huge moment. It's this massive shift. It is not behavior modification. It is a mindset change of no matter what happens with my marriage, with my wife, with my kids, with my health, I am never quitting on Jesus Christ. 
And even more importantly, I am never quitting on these people. These are God's people in this room. They are God's body. And if they have fellowship with Christ, why would I not want to have fellowship with them? That is the reason that I transferred to Virginia Tech and lost $28,000. That is the reason we make decisions in life. To date, like only a few people really, you kind of shrink the pool when you become a Christian from like, oh, let's take, you know, 3 billion people to like, I don't know how many, but it's a lot less when you become a Christian. Like who in the world would ever do that? It seems crazy. Because of Jesus Christ, I would do it. And marrying a Christian is vastly important. It's the biggest decision you'll make in your life. And you only make that decision when you meet the real Jesus. And so your life actually changes. And sure, you're not perfect. So you have ups and downs. But boy, does it look different than before. And sure, you make mistakes, but it looks different. This is repentance, right? It's what repentance looks like. Praise God, it is not perfection. Praise God. (laughs) Right? Can I get an amen? amen? Praise God, it is not your resume. But both begin with sadness and guilt. So I want to encourage you this morning. What do you feel guilty about? Do you feel guilty about anything, first of all? Do you feel guilty about anything? If you do, why do you feel guilty? And what do you do with that guilt? A lot of us do one of two things. We blame ourselves or we blame somebody else. We blame God. We we play the blame game, right, as the name of the sermon would imply. But when we go to worldly sorrow, get to sadness, guilt, worldly sorrow brings death. It's supposed to say worldly sorrow down there, sorry. Worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is I got caught and I'm embarrassed at how it makes me feel and I want to be better. And this happens a lot, right? Like I want to stop looking at online porn because it's getting in the way of my job performance. Repentance. No, you selfish son of a gun. That has nothing to do with repentance. It's still about you, right? It's still about you. I will stop being mean to my wife because I'm a good man. No, you're not. And it's not repentance. Repentance is I'm going to treat my wife differently because Jesus would. I'm going to stop looking at this stuff because it is God's daughter I'm looking at. And far be it from me to view God's daughter like this. And he loved me so much. How could I do this to him? You see the difference? Vast difference. But in that moment of guilt, we have to differentiate because one sends us down toward the, the, the perils of death. You're going to hang out in that area for too long before you just quit. You just quit. People can only go through suffering if they have a light at the end of the tunnel. If there's no light for you, if it's just, well, we're just doomed to kind of sin. And you sinned? Me too. Whew. All right. See you later. If that's, we're not going to last, church. You're going to quit. You will. We all will. We're, all, we're not going to make it to the end. That means we've got to have the conversations now that bring us to godly sorrow. Yeah. To have a sorrow that actually helps us focus on God. Yeah. It's possible to have a selfless sadness. A sadness of, look what I did to Jesus. That brings repentance. And my favorite part is not even the salvation, even though it probably should be. It leads to salvation, but it leaves no regret. Right. That's what the passage says. No regret. I love, there's a, um, oh, 40 minutes. Wow, it's a long time. Um, we're going to wrap it up. But... <laughs> Okay, we'll cut that illustration. All right. It was going to be really good, but next time. But I think really what it is, is that taking things that have happened and interpreting them differently, right? Instead of, I was such a bad person, I'm such a bad person. It's, yes, I am a bad person, but praise God, I have Jesus. You don't lie to yourself. You don't say, I'm a good person. Uh, You say, no, no, I realize that I'm no good, but it doesn't destroy me. 
Because Jesus is what's good about me. Jesus is why I live. And so it's not, it's not just whitewashing the past. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's coming to grips, having a sober reality of the past and letting that actually launch you. Um, I'll share it anyway. It's just, it's a good illustration. But in the, the musical Upside Down, which was a musical of the Boston and New York church put on years ago, uh, in the beginning of the musical, Peter is accused, accused of his mistakes. He hears a rooster crow. Every time Peter hears a rooster crow, he feels guilty, right? Because he remembers that he denied Jesus. So 20 years later, when Peter is about to die on the cross, they say, Peter, denounce Jesus or else we'll crucify your wife. And he can't do it. He's stuck. He goes, God, I can't give up my wife. I, I can't. He's stuck. He says, God, I can't do this. And of course, his wife sings this incredible, you know, musical number at the end. Basically, like, don't try and save me. I'm already saved. And uh, but what she does is she calls him Simon. The whole play, three and a half hours of calling him Simon, even though he's been renamed Peter by Jesus. At the very end, she says, Peter, remember. And he actually, at the very end, the things that used to make him feel guilty actually make him feel uh, at peace. He says, I remember walking on the water, but instead of remembering I messed up, he remembers Jesus grabbed my hand. I remember when he called me, because he said, get behind me, Satan. But I remember that he gave me a new name. And it's actually cool because as he's being crucified, the rooster crows. And instead of the rooster crowing and causing him to feel guilty, the rooster crows and he's empowered. It reminds him of God's grace. That is repentance. It's to see your past in a whole new light. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. The amazing thing about Judah in Judah's speech is that he accepts that he's a second-class son. He says, my father had two sons. One is dead. The other is Benjamin. When Judah appeals to Joseph, he accepts he's going to be loved less, but he puts himself. He says, take me instead. This is incredibly, is vastly amazing. It's a really great picture of contriteness for Judah. But the whole point is that Judah is ready to see justice done. A lot of times we confess our sin. We don't want the consequences. No. We, hey, don't tell anyone. Or, no. We don't want the consequences of our sin. If I tell my husband, it'll have bad consequences. So I won't. But true repentance is ready to see justice done. Judah says, take me. If it means enslavement for the rest of my life, amen. He's ready to do it. You know what's amazing about Judah too is when, when they find the silver cup, what does Judah say? They find the silver cup in his sack. Judah says, God has uncovered all of our guilt. But they didn't take the cup. So what does he mean? Judah knows they didn't take that cup. So why would he say, the Lord has uncovered all of our guilt? Because he's not talking about the cup. What's he talking about? What happened 22 years ago? what Judah's talking about. And he says, listen, it's our fault. He doesn't even know he's telling his brother. He doesn't even know he's apologizing to his brother. And he's still having godly sorrow. We own what happened and we're ready to see justice done. It's an incredibly moving picture. Robert Alter, a great Hebrew scholar, says about Judah, uh, 22 years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery Now he is prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be set free. 22 years earlier, he stood with his brothers and silently watched when the bloodied tunic they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. Now he is willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. 
Final point, turning yourself in. Repentance is simply turning yourself in and saying, I am not Lord anymore. Jesus is Lord. Whatever he says goes. Now, sometimes it's easier to say on your conversion day, on your baptism day, than it is to live out the rest of our lives. But hey, a lot of us, it might take us 22 years, but we're going to hang in there with each other. Amen? Amen. It might take time. We're not going anywhere. We're going to be there for each other. We've got to turn ourselves in. You know, Jesus turned himself in. Judah is incredible because he, he owns his sin. Even though he could have said, we didn't take the cup. We had nothing to do with the cup. That's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Judah, but still Judah takes ownership of the sin that's happened. He still says, it's, it's our fault. Take me. He steps in. You know, Judah is amazing because of this. Jesus says, blame me. But even though it's not his fault. I think the amazing thing about Christ is it wasn't like Christ had to own up to something that he did. Christ owned up to something that you did. Because you wouldn't. But Christ said, and even in this story, Joseph's kind of like, let me see if they really repent and then I'll forgive. Jesus is like, no, I will forgive. And I'll trust that you'll repent. And that's an amazing Jesus. That's an amazing Savior. It's a Jesus that we should want to go to. And that's what the thief on the cross says, right? We're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And that's a perspective that we got to fight to have church, that we are getting what we deserve. But Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. A perspective that is focused on Christ. I rewrote this. The 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8 is the bad Drew version. So BDV. (laughs) See what this worldly sorrow has produced in you. What apathy, what blaming of other people. What self-accusations? What isolation? What temper tantrums? What lack of confession? What readiness to punish others? And for us this morning, which one is it? Do we have godly sorrow? Because if we do, amen, everything's going to be fine. Do you have worldly sorrow? And it's okay to admit that and say, I want to get to a place where I do have godly sorrow. We're going to close out by singing the Lion of Judah. It was Judah who stepped up among his brothers and said, take me. It was Judah who owned up to his sin, but it was the lion of Judah who was able to save all of us for all time. Let's sing the lion of Judah together as we close out this morning. Amen and to God be the glory. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Seth Mitchell. And if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, you can go to blueridge.church or join us at Burnley Moran Elementary School at 7 p.m. Wednesdays or 10.30 a.m. Sundays in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.